So if you're here for the first time, we would just like to ask you just to stand for a moment, and these ladies are going to give you a gift. So anytime, any first person, any first time folks, the ladies will give you a gift. As the ushers come down the aisle to receive the offering, I have two exciting announcements to make. I know that Eric is going to make the, the mundane announcements. <laughs> I get to make the exciting announcements. Well, we're going to have another wedding. Amen? We're going to have another wedding. Who is it? Look around. These people are here with us. There's a young man and a young lady whose faces are beaming so brightly this morning that if you were to look at them, you need sunglasses. Jason Duncan and Leah Thomas, y'all stand. Wonderful. So the wedding is right now dated for April. We're so excited. Leo, are your mom and them here? Y'all stand for a minute. Let's see what y'all look like. All right. That's the mom and them. Now, I'm going to get in trouble because I didn't ask Warren and Phyllis to stand, but I think everybody knows Warren and Phyllis, right? Okay, great. So glad to have y'all with us this morning. And then another exciting Announcement, we have someone with us for the very, 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 very first time. And I've been told that if I make the announcement, Gene and I will be able to eat at New Orleans Hamburger free for a year. <laughs> so there is an ulterior motive. Nathan James Basil. Basil, Basil, Basil. Where are y'all? Are they here? Wait a minute. There, wait, wait. I can't see you. Anna, do it again. I didn't see. There he is. All right, all right. All right. Well, that's Blake and Anna, so wonderful about that. Just want to communicate to you our appreciation as leaders, as those whom God has given to have the responsibility of ministering to the needs of his church. And responsibility for caring for you. Just want you to hear how much we appreciate the response of so many to the needs that God has given to this church to display the wonders of his grace financially. And if you've not had the opportunity yet or have not done it, Ask the Lord your part in this. Because quite frankly, I don't believe any of us want to be left out of being able to say, God, use my contribution as part of bringing about the demonstration of how great he is these days. So please be encouraged and be thanked from us.
for your generosity and for your faithfulness. Father, thank you so much. You have poured out and you continue to pour out upon us grace upon grace in the Lord Jesus by your spirit. Father, today we give back out of the abundance of your gift that which you have said to do as a demonstration to honor you and to trust you through our obedience of joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Peter. Good morning, everyone. My name's Eric. I'm on staff here, worship leader at the church, and just a joy to be together. Pastor Peter said that he got to do all the fun announcements, but actually I get to do one of them. Uh, so I'm going to get to announce another baby who is here for the first time, and that is Lillian Jane Oliveira, which she is... Where is she? Oh, she's feeding. Oh, so we don't get to see Lillian. But she is here, and she is eating. Uh, <laughs> nice, nice. All right, well, she is here. Congratulations, guys. So gl glad that she is here with us. So, uh, a couple of quick announcements. You guys get your bulletins out. Uh, we've talked about this a couple of weeks. Men's Retreat is coming up at the end of January. If you haven't signed up yet... Uh, you could do that online. You can do that out in the foyer as you leave today. So make sure you're signing up online. If you've got questions, uh, go see the booth, and they can answer those questions for you. But that is coming up quickly, so we want to register. Um, I think actually the, oh, man, I forgot the date for this. The date for the hotel uh, lodging price. I know that's coming up quickly. So there, there's, a, there's a discount on the hotel costs that we're getting uh, by a certain date. If you go ask the, the booth outside, they'll tell you what that date is because I actually don't know it. But it's coming up soon. I think it's in December sometime. Uh, and then also the Christmas musical will be here in a couple of weeks on December 11th and 13th at 7. Um, so we, we have an some invitations that you can grab in the foyer to invite your friends and family, co-workers uh, to come and hear the presentation of the gospel and some Christmas music uh, with us on those either of those two nights. Uh, and kids' choir is going to be performing with us, adult choir. We've got an orchestra that will be playing, so it's going to be a fun night. Something else that we're doing uh, that I don't think we've mentioned yet uh, on that evening, it's on the back of your flyer. Uh, One Heart Nola, our orphan... Um, ministry that we have here at the church with Terry and Brian Robofsky, the, uh, those guys are going to be collecting new toys and gift cards that night. Uh, so if you want to bring some toys to give, uh, you can do that. They will, um, they'll be happy to take those to some kids in need. So uh, you can read some more information about that on the back card. And then lastly, we wanted to give you a heads up about our Christmas service schedule. So what we're going to be doing this Christmas, since Christmas Day is falling on a Sunday morning, uh, we're going to actually have two services that weekend. We're going to have one on Saturday at 10 a.m., and we're going to have one on Sunday at 10 a.m. So Christmas Eve at 10 o'clock, we'll be here for an abbreviated service. Uh, Sunday morning on the 25th, 10 a.m., we'll be here for an abbreviated service. That'll be the same service, uh, so come to whichever one of those you're able to come to. Uh, and it, again, it'll be abbreviated. We won't have children's ministry. We won't do a lot of the other kind of things that happen, Royal Rangers and Missionettes and stuff on, on Sunday morning. We'll just have that service here at 10 o'clock. So we'd love to have you guys make plans to join us. 
And I think that's going to be it. Kids, you guys can be dismissed. And Evan, come and bring us the word, man. Well, good morning. Trust everybody had a blessed Thanksgiving this week. Honestly, I'm still recovering a little bit from the Turkey Bowl, our flag football tournament. It's the one day of the year that I get to pretend like I'm an athlete. And I'm not sure that I convinced my teammates, but hey, A for effort there, living in the glory. Uh, well, if you'd open up your Bible and go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 20, we're finally coming to the end of Exodus 20. And one of the reasons why we wanted to study the book of Exodus is because of how it helps us recover a vision for the authority of God. And as we've said, we, we, we live in a culture that resists this. And that's because it idolizes personal freedom above everything else. And, and God, if he exists, he's really just there to affirm and applaud you from the sidelines as you go about making your own decisions and following your dreams in life. And of course, he's you know, ready to pick you up and nurse your wounds when things become difficult. But overall, he's really more of a life coach than Lord. But we've been parked at Mount Sinai for a while now, and it could not give us a more radically different portrait of God. This is a God who makes claims and who issues demands and who expects that we obey him. But if you've been too influenced by the assumptions of our culture, then, then when you come to a passage like our text this morning with its fire and brimstone, you'll be tempted to either minimize it out of embarrassment or dismiss it altogether. There are certain things that we have lost the ability to hear, mainly because we are out of touch with the one who is speaking. But you cannot understand the law of God unless you first appreciate the nature of God. Put another way, what exactly do you mean when you use that word God? And answering that question accurately will have everything to do with placing God's authority in perspective. You know, I was teaching the 11-year-old class a, a few weeks ago, and, and we were actually talking about God's law. And I asked them to tell me about a, a situation that they felt like was unfair or unreasonable. And, and one of the girls mentioned how in her school, whenever there's a substitute teacher... The substitute isn't really familiar with the material, and so what she does is she has her favorite student in the class go ahead and teach the class for her. And then, of course, that goes to her head, and it puts the, all of her classmates in the awkward position of having her call the shots. And, and I think that's, that's how our secular culture reacts to the law of God. Like, like God is just one of us who happens to have the most power and bosses people around. They, they, they picture God as some sort of needy deity who has self-esteem issues, probably because of a bad experience in kindergarten or something like that. And so now he demands worship or else he'll send you to hell. And that's the kind of person they see issuing these commands. But you cannot separate the law of God from the nature of God. And that's exactly what Genesis and Exodus have been seeking to help us see. From the beginning, we're introduced to the fact that, that God isn't just anyone. He's the creator. 
He made us. We are a figment of his imagination because he is the one who is speaking us into existence. And so our relationship and our obligation to him, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. We are his creatures. And so he has every right over our lives. And we also find out that that God didn't make us because he was lonely and wanted somebody to talk to. He He has forever existed, perfectly happy in the fellowship of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always having everyone and everything they could ever need. And so creation, it's just the overflow of that joy. It is divine happiness spilling over graciously so that it can be shared with others. And God's law gives us the guidelines for how to live in the satisfaction that we were designed for. And you can't understand the law without first knowing that God is good. You know, pretty soon we're going to come to some commands in the book of Exodus that, that for some people they are challenging to process. And often they become a moral basis to critique the God of the Bible. And so you have to have the conviction that the God who is issuing these commands is good. And he's the standard of goodness. You need to know who God is in order to receive what God expects And that's the point of our text this morning. As Israel is is gathered at Mount Sinai and receives the Ten Commandments, there's something about God's nature that he wants them to see. He wants them to feel this. And it is that God is frighteningly awesome. So let's read together. Exodus 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray. Oh Lord, if we are going to benefit from this passage, it has to be so much more than words more than just ideas that are getting communicated here. Lord, there is something about you that you want, that you intended your people to see and to experience. And God, we want to receive that. So God, would would this moment, would this be a moment of encounter as you draw near to us? Would we be ready to listen and to receive? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are certain people that you meet that instantly leave an impression, and that's typically because they might break conventions or they defy expectations, and and my grandmother, Wilda, was one of those. At at four foot 11, she could walk faster than most people could run, and she was even quicker to state her opinion and fight you for it. She put, I like to think of it like this, she put the wild in Wilda, and she would often say, 
I don't get headaches, I give them. Um, and she was just this peculiar mixture of, of kindness and generosity on the one hand, and then just fierce energy. You know, as you're, you're talking with her, you weren't ever certain, is she about to kiss you and give you money or knock you to the ground? And so she made herself known. No, nobody was ever a stranger to her. She, she was a, a street rat, and she'd ride the, the city bus just to act as tour guide. And if you ever had the chance to come across her, you would not soon forget her. And certain people are larger than life like that. Well, well there is, there's this meeting with God here. And, and honestly, it might challenge our expectations that there is something wild about it. Because God's people are gathered around a mountain where there is thunder and lightning and smoke. And they are scared for their lives. And, and, and this is all intentional. Hey, this is not by accident. God, God wants to leave an impression here. He wants to lodge the memory of this encounter in their minds. This is what it looks like when I show up. You know, much of spiritual culture today wants to keep God at a comfortable distance. It's certainly true in, in the public square, but, but, but even in the church as well, that can be true. We're more often after emotional comfort than a real encounter. We're, we're more in tune with our felt needs than we are with our need to walk, with, walk in repentance. And so we'll often say that we want to see more of God, but we don't necessarily mean, know what that means. We're, we're not prepared for the disruption that comes when God meets with us. I love the way that C.S. Lewis portrays this in, in the Chronicles of Narnia. The, the lion Aslan, who, who is a Christ figure, he's described as, as not being a tame lion. He is good, but that does not mean that he is safe. You know, elsewhere, Lewis himself said that I don't really understand what people mean when, when they say that I'm not afraid of God because he's good. He says, haven't they ever been to the dentist? Uh, well, in one of the scenes in, in this, this series, uh, there's a character named Jill who is desperately thirsty, and she comes on a, a stream, and she goes to drink. But then she notices a giant lion who is standing by there. And the reader knows this is Aslan. And this will be on the screen. It says, are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she came a step nearer do you eat girls, she said. <laughs> I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. 
Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Well, here Israel encounters the living God and he is good, but he is not tame. He is startling. He's the one who has rescued them from Egypt, and he is their only hope, yet they must drink from the stream with the lion present. And this text wants you and me to benefit from this scene, to, to allow us to feel the vibration in the ground, to experience the stunning reality of the presence of God. And you know, this is a God who has made himself Known Right here he has revealed himself after graciously redeeming his people. He has announced to them his will for their lives through his law. And yet he remains deeply mysterious. Now look at this description again in verse 21. I just love this. It says, Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You know, Darkness conveys this, this feeling of the unknown. You know, when you're in a dark room, you're not certain who or what else might be in that room with you. And in the Bible, and you'll know this if you, were, if you attended School of the Word this week and last, God is often portrayed with the imagery of light. But here, darkness reminds us of the mystery, the boundlessness of God's being. He is unfathomably deep. You cannot swim down to the bottom of the ocean floor of who he is. There's something about God that even when he tells us about himself remains inexpressible. I love the way that Jacob described God. Jacob who wrestled with God at night and, and met the sunrise, surprised to be alive and yet Walking with a limp, he called him in Genesis 31, 42, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. The fear. He wrestled in the darkness with the fear and would not let him go. And here, Moses draws near to the darkness. There are some sights that are, are so awesome and so frightening, they just pull you in. I don't know about you, but I have this, this love mixed with this strange fear of, of heights. I love to, to climb things, to, to get on top of things, to go on thrilling lives, that, that rides that lift you up and all of a sudden drop you down. And, but I, I get this feeling, and I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, when, when you're standing on the edge of, of a cliff or up on top of a, of a tall building that... For some reason, all of a sudden, my, my legs are going to just disobey my brain and jump over. It's just like you're just pulled over. There's, the, the, there's something about the edge that you cannot get your mind off of it. It demands your attention. It's all you can think about. And stand in the beauty and the awe of the Grand Canyon, and you dare not tear away your eyes. Now, let me ask you this. Does this describe your encounter with God? Do you know God in this way? Or do you suffer from small God syndrome? If we're honest, for many of us, God is not fascinating. He doesn't keep our attention. We're more captivated by the next clickbait headline than we are by our Bibles. 
were taken in by some recipe video that your uncle shared on Facebook knowing full well that he has no intention to ever cook that and yet by some automatic force you just keep scrolling down and yet we don't know what it's like to lose an awareness of time in our prayer closets. There's so many things calling for our attention and, and we, we give it so cheaply. You know, the other day I saw an ad for Microsoft Edge that said, don't just stream, binge watch up to 45% more battery life than Google Chrome. Now, I'm not sure what's more offensive, the open invitation to binge watch or the thought that I would actually use Microsoft Edge, despite the fact that Windows 10 keeps wanting to make it my default program. But when was the last time that you found your attention locked upon God? that you could not pull away your eyes, that thoughts about him and perspective of who he is overwhelmed you. You know, some people might say that the problem is that we're too familiar with God, that we've just gotten used to him. But no, our, our problem is not too much familiarity with God. It is a lack of familiarity he is small to us because we've never drawn near to him in a way that allows him to eclipse all of life. We don't know what it's like to have the size of his shadow cast upon our world. And so he is to us silent and ignorable. He's an idea. He's a nice tradition. He's an inspiring thought, somebody that we can call out to when, it, when we really need it. We'll get to him eventually. But th listen, that is not the God of Exodus 20. The God of Exodus 20 cannot be ignored. You do not trifle with him. He's, he's not somebody that you just get to avoid and eventually come to on your own terms. He, he's an untamed lion. He's a consuming fire. It is this God, David Well says, majestic and holy in his being, this God whose love knows no bounds because his holiness knows no limits, who has disappeared from the modern evangelical world and how we need to recover this. So please, give yourself to the study and experience of God. He is inexhaustible. He is unendingly interesting. You will never reach the limits of who he is, and when you see him as he is, it makes a claim on everything in your life. Proverbs famously says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And it's interesting that the, the, the book of Proverbs, it, it deals with a lot of issues of practical wisdom. You know, things like work and money and friendships and, and relationships and how to deal with people. You know, it's, it's, it, it tells you how do you be smart when you handle these things and it's stuff that we're, we're still trying to figure out today. And there are thousands of, of how-to blogs that address them. But it begins by saying, you, you want to attain 
knowledge of the world. You want to be an informed person. You want to be in touch with reality. And I think one of the reasons why we're so connected to our devices today is we, we want to just figure out what is there to know? How can, I, how can I get a grasp on everything that's taking place around me? There's a desire in us for that. And this book begins by saying, you, you want to understand this world? Stand in awe of the one who is causing it to be by an act of will. Who is the foundation beneath all reality. Who's, who gives meaning to your existence and your relationships. And who, who is relevant for every single one of them. You need a God who is larger than this life. In order to be informed about life you spend time making yourself accessible to all the data and information and perspectives and opinions out there, but you have minored in the study and experience of God, you have consigned yourself to be uninformed and irrelevant. In the word of Proverbs, a fool. And so learn the value of fearing God. Do not trade in knowledge of him for anything else. Charles Bridges says, after having gone round the whole circuit, after having weighed exactly all the sources of knowledge, Solomon's conclusion of the whole matter is this, that the fear of God in its practical exercise is the whole of man, all his duty, all his happiness, his first lesson and his last. Now, Mr. Bridges here describes the fear of God as a joyful thing, and we're going to get to that eventually. But, but for Israel here, th- this, this was not a comfortable experience. They are shaken to the core. Look again at verse 19. They stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. This is what's going on here. The personal presence of God is unbearable, unbearable to them. They are begging to not have to hear his voice. There's there's something threatening about it. Now, why is that, right? Is that just the lightning and, and the smoke? Are they just really afraid of loud noises? <laughs> you know, what, one year we, we made the mistake of, of leaving our, our dog in the, in the backyard on 4th of July. And she got freaked out by all the fireworks and ran away. And thankfully, thankfully we found her a week later. But, but is that what's happening here? Right? It's, it's just, just overstimulation. No, there, there, there's something much deeper. And it is deep in the heart of man. It is the awful feeling of exposure and ruin when you are in front of holiness. There is a moral otherness to God that cuts right through us. It shines upon every hidden motive and every secret impulse. Here before the perfect purity of God, there's no evasion No positive spin you could possibly place on your actions. They're they're just seen for their emptiness and their moral poverty. 
You know, in the vision of Isaiah 6, there, there are these sinless angelic beings covering their face and their feet before the Lord. And these are innocent creatures. They've never done anything wrong, and yet they feel the need to clothe themselves before God's holiness. All Isaiah can do is curse himself in dread. Woe is me. I am undone. We, we, we cannot help but fall apart before this God. And you know, th this isn't unique to the Old Testament. Right? This isn't just something that the Old Testament God has and eventually gets over. It, it, when Jesus called his disciples and he began by having Peter cast his net on the other side and, and brings in so much fish that their nets burst. Peter's reaction is strange. You, you think he'd be eager to sign up for some sort of fishing partnership with Jesus to, to get in on this deal. But that's not what he does. Luke 5 verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O oh Lord. Get away from me, because I'm a sinner. And I wonder, did Peter know that he was sinful before this moment? Did he ever have this insight? Or did it take a glimpse into the holiness of the incarnate Christ in order to reveal that? John Calvin makes the, the point that you can never truly know yourself without knowing God. He says, so long as we do not look beyond the earth, we are quite pleased with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue. We address ourselves in the most flattering terms and seem only less than demigods. But should we once begin to raise our thoughts to God and reflect what kind of being he is and how absolute the perfection of that righteousness and wisdom and virtue to which as a standard we are bound to be conformed? Listen, what formerly delighted us by its false show of righteousness will become polluted with the greatest iniquity which strangely imposed upon us under the name of wisdom, will disgust us by its extreme folly. And what presented the appearance of virtuous energy will be condemned as the most miserable impotence. So far are those qualities in us, in us which seem most perfect from corresponding to the divine purity. Hence that dread and amazement with which, as Scripture uniformly relates, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. When we see those who previously stood firm and secure so quaking with terror that the fear of death takes hold of them, nay, they are in a manner swallowed up and annihilated, the inference to be drawn is that men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Listen, if you find yourself, if you're just impressed with who you are, 
and you're trying to figure out why nobody else has discovered that and why the people in your world have such a problem with your obnoxious behavior and how you relate to them, you haven't drawn near to this God. You don't have any sort of self-awareness because you haven't allowed the blazing light and the mysterious darkness of who he is to cast upon you and, and, and run through all that you are and expose it. Here, in this mountain, in God's presence, the contrast is clear. And so the people tell Moses, you go talk to God. But we're not getting close. Or else we're going to die. And, and listen, they're not just being dramatic here. God himself had told them in chapter 9, you, you better stay away from this mountain if you want to hold on to your life. We carry around inside of us guilt that, that, that's a target that God's justice is locked down upon. If it is my actions and my attitudes and my motives and my private thoughts that are the basis at any moment God could end me. And he would be perfectly right you know this? You know this about yourself and about this God? Here's something to consider. Do you ever think about hell? It's amazing how even for Christians it, it can just be the furthest thing from our minds. It can seem almost fictional, but it is real, and it awaits those outside of Christ. But what is it that makes hell terrible? Is it the absence of God? In one sense, yes, an absence of, of his clarity and his favor and comfort. In, in hell, there is an, an experience of utter lostness and isolation as man is removed from the warmth of the fellowship of God that he was designed for. But in, in Scripture, God is in no way uninvolved in hell. As one theologian has put it, hell is eternity in the presence of God. Heaven is eternity in the presence of God with a mediator. But without a mediator, without somebody representing you before God, the, the, the nearness of God is not good news for sinners. His wrath is real. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And graciously, God wants them to get a taste of this fear. As Peter would say, God wants to scare the hell out of them. In Scripture, one of the reasons God gave us his law was, was to convince us that we couldn't meet his standards of righteousness so that we would be driven to Christ as our only hope. As we've been emphasizing, and as we'll see again 
In a moment, this is not the only reason for God's law, but it is an essential one. Because on our own, you know, we, we, we think we're basically fine. We, we don't feel like there's a problem. What's not to love about us? And it takes what one hymn calls the terrors of law and of God to shock us out of our self-righteousness. This was often a theme in the short stories of Flannery O'Connor, and, and in one of her stories called The Revelation, uh, there's a character named Mrs. Turpin, and, and she's sitting in the waiting room of a doctor's office, and, and we're given insight into her thoughts as she assesses everybody else in, in the room, you know, their appearance and their social standing and, and their moral qualities, and and, and they become the reference point. They, they become the standard of comparison for her to feel good about herself. Now, she's not perfect, and she's not wealthy, and she's not done everything right, but at least she's not like them, right? Um, but as she's thinking these things, she, she begins to notice this, this teenage girl who's reading a college textbook and who's scowling at her. Uh, well, she begins to make polite conversation with the other people in, in, in the waiting room, and, and she, her internal monologue of, of self-righteousness continues while she's interacting politely with them. But, but eventually, the college student takes the book that she's reading and hurls it at Mrs. Turpin's head and lunges toward her and begins to strangle her and says, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Now, in the story, this girl's name is Mary Grace. And the law was given as an act of grace to assault our pride. It strangles out our self-confidence and tells us that we are children of hell apart from God. It, it leaves us gasping for air and desperate for mercy and, and so that we're in a place that's ready to receive it when it's offered freely because otherwise we would think we'd be fine without it. And, and this is what God is doing to Israel at the beginning of their existence. And, and so they tell Moses, you speak to us, right? You go to God and you, you come back to us and you represent us. You, you go between us and this God. They, they need a mediator, and, and this is the picture of the one who's to come, the one that Deuteronomy 18 describes as, as a prophet like unto Moses who, who would not only represent us before God, but who would fulfill every demand of the law perfectly and who would die under the death sentence of the lawbreakers in order to bring us near to this God. How do you dwell with a consuming fire? Only by atonement. And the book of Exodus, it's part of this larger story. And so the answer to the problem that Mount Sinai creates is the book of Leviticus, right? These two things go hand in hand. Pastor Keith has said this. God is installing something about his, his presence and his holiness and the fact that he's going to dwell in their midst and therefore why they need cleansing, why they need forgiveness, why they need the sacrifice of an innocent one to atone for their sins. And those sacrifices, as you carry through the rest of Scripture, 
in and of themselves did not do that. But they were reaching forward for the true innocent one who would come and who would actually take away sin and bring us into God's presence. And so that we can sing the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood, his obedience to the law and his blood that cleanses us from sin hide all my transgressions from view. We take refuge in God from the terrible wrath of God, right? That's the gospel. An awareness of his demands, an awareness of how we have sinned against him is ultimately not meant to drive us away from him, but drive us toward him as our only hope. And so there's a kind of fear that believers need never experience if they are in Christ. Like 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If you're in Christ, if you've run to him for refuge, do not fear. Right? Yes, you deserve punishment. And if you're bored with the gospel, if, if grace isn't amazing to you, if you were singing that song earlier and it's like words on a screen and, there, and there's nothing ringing true in your heart, it's probably because you have forgotten or you never fully understood what you deserve to face and what Christ absorbed in full. But if you're in him, and you're aware of your guilt, you're aware of your shame, you're aware of what you've done, do not despair, do not run away from God, run toward him, his perfect love will cast out fear, there's only assurance and joy. And here Moses brings this assurance to them as well, but, but the way that he says it seems a bit paradoxical. Look at verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. He's saying God, God's aim is ultimately not your destruction, but your restoration. He doesn't want you to stand far off, ultimately. He's bringing you to himself, but, but, but look at this. Verse 20 that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. We're told not to fear because God is doing this so that we might fear. How does that work? Well, not fear in one sense, but fear in the right sense, in the way that God has designed. There are things that you fear even when the threat of harm has been removed because they're still powerful and they're still incredible and there's still something you just don't mess with. And our God is still a consuming fire. And yet we are called into a relationship with this God. In the Bible, the fear of the Lord does not convey hostility. 
In fact, there's this interesting connection between friendship and and fear, right? There's some counterintuitive passages in the psalm. Psalm 25, verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. Psalm 33, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Right? Notice the parallel. The Psalms will often do this. Right? They're, they're poetry. And so they'll, they'll come up with one way of saying something. And then they'll use the next line to say it in another way. But it's getting at the same idea. But, but notice what's parallel here. Those who fear him... Those who hope in his steadfast love. They're they're two sides of the same attitude. To fear God is is not contradictory to, but but it's the same posture of hoping in his steadfast love. Psalm 130 verse 4. With you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. Why has God forgiven us? He forgives us so that we might be released from the fear of condemnation and moved toward the kind of fear of him that does not keep us away, but draws us near and keeps us right next to him, right near to his love and his friendship, and we dare not go anywhere else. John Piper gives this illustration of a time when his oldest son, Karsten, was six years old and, and they visited somebody's house and when they opened the door, there was this large dog standing there and it just was eye to eye with Karsten, just this huge animal. And, and so they're, they're talking and, and, and Karsten's petting this dog and it's sweet toward him. Uh, But Piper asks him if he could go back to the car to get something for him. And as Karsten walks away and turns to to head toward the car, the dog starts growling and barking at him. And the owner of the house said, you know, you might not want to do that. He he doesn't really like it when people walk away from him. (laughs) And, And Piper thought, that's it. I'm using that as a sermon illustration. And I'm stealing it today. Uh, the fear of God, it's, it's, it, for the believer, it's not a fear of being near to God. It is a fear of wandering away from God. It is a recognition of the danger of departing from this God who has you as his own. Doesn't keep us away, doesn't, doesn't keep us from coming near, but from running away from him, knowing he will mercifully hunt us down. Charles Bridges says, What is this fear of the Lord? It is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. His wrath is so bitter and his love is so sweet that hence springs an earnest desire to please him. And because of the danger of coming short from his own weakness and temptations, a holy watchfulness and fear that we might not sin against him. Proverbs 14, 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. It keeps us from wandering off into death. 
And in the context here of Exodus 20, the way that we turn away from the snares of death is by walking in the law of the Lord. Yes, God's law reveals our inability to fulfill it, and it drives us to Christ. But when we know that Jesus has fulfilled it for us, that our standing and our acceptance before God is not based upon our obedience, but on his obedience, and so we are forgiven, the law then becomes for us our guide to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And so those who fear God with this fitting family fear, they delight to obey his commandments. So later on, God tells Moses in Deuteronomy 31, assemble the people that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And what's the result? And be careful to do all the words of this law. Careful to obey. This is how we fellowship with our Father in reverence. There is, there is a value and a respect for the person of God that causes us to walk in his ways. We do not treat him like he's common, like his word is up for our evaluation, like we, we get to decide how serious certain expectations are and whether or not that really works for us given our current circumstances and our current needs. Those who have been brought near to this God, this God who required the death of his son in order for us to be drawn into his presence, do not presume to take on for themselves the option of disobeying him, of evaluating whether or not he really means what he says. There, there's a caution there is a carefulness to walk in what he has revealed. Is this inside of you? Do you, are you quick to dismiss and make excuses for your faithlessness? When you have sinned, when you have disobeyed God, is your is your solution to that to minimize it? To think God's probably not really concerned anyways? Is there some mental justification that happens in your head? Or is the solution repentance and receiving the free forgiveness of Jesus that's available in him because he gave his life for that sin? Costly forgiveness. Because there are only two options. Either you minimize sin, which is just another way of minimizing God and treating him like he is small, or you recognize the gravity and the significance of the holiness of God and therefore the significance of the price that was paid in order for you to be brought into him. And therefore you Hope in his steadfast love. And that's what it means to fear him. You don't hope in your innocence. You don't hope in the fact that God doesn't notice and God doesn't care. You hope in his boundless 
mercy because his wrath is real and his love is sweet. This is the final thought for us today. And Eric, if you want to go ahead and come back up, man. This is a fear that is to be enjoyed. This is the twist here. Several passages in Scripture reveal this, but just a couple for us. Proverbs 19, verse 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, right? Physical life in Proverbs. Literally, if you, if you don't have any fear of God, you're probably doing things that is a danger to your life and the people around you. But life in the full sense, abundant life, and whoever has it, rests satisfied. You want to consign yourself to be dissatisfied? Disregard the fear of God. Nehemiah 1, 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Delight to fear. Fear of God is, is about preserving our joy in God. You know, the millennials and, and younger in here will be familiar with the concept of FOMO uh, or fear of missing out. Right, this has always existed, but social media kind of exacerbates this. You, you get this, this doctored presentation of other people's lives and the adventures and thrills that they have and, and the, how that gets posted on Facebook and Instagram and the things that are happening. And, and part of what you experience is this, this fear of, what about my life? Am I involved in that? Am, am I missing something here? Or if there's some event that's happening and you know other people are there and there's, there's a party taking place and, and you feel like you're on the, on the outside of that, you, you don't want to miss out. And so you want to make sure you're, you're in touch with what's going on and you're included in this. Well, there's, there's something about the fear of the Lord in Scripture that's described as a fear of missing out. You don't want to miss out on one single reward, one aspect of delight in who God is that he has prepared for you when you are near to him and walk in submission to him. And so you will not settle for anything less. John Piper says it like this, the end and goal of creation hangs on knowing God with our minds and enjoying God with our hearts. The very purpose of the universe, reflecting and displaying the glory of God, right, right there, is that your definition for why the universe is here? Because that's what's at the center of this Bible, and that is at the heart of Exodus 20. The purpose of the universe hangs not only on a true knowledge of God, but also on authentic joy in God. God is glorified, Jonathan Edwards says, not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. What follows from this, I have found, shocks most Christians. And, and if you could just understand this and get this as a conviction, it will turn your world upside down. Namely, that we should be blood earnest 
deadly serious about being happy in God. We should pursue our joy with such a passion and a vehemence that if we must, we would cut off our hand or gouge out our eye to have it. God being glorified in us hangs on our being satisfied in him, which makes our being satisfied in him infinitely important. It becomes the animating vocation of our lives. We tremble at the horror of not rejoicing in God. We quake at the fearful lukewarmness of our hearts. We waken to the truth that it is a treacherous sin not to pursue that satisfaction in God's with all our hearts. Is there any trembling inside of you? Is there any quaking? Is there any concern that you might be deceived for settling for some sort of trinket and empty pleasure in this world while you throw away infinite joy? That's the fear of God here. Listen, often the problem is not that we just want things too much, that we're too much after our happiness and our pleasure. It is that we want things too little. We're too quick to settle for what's cheap and passing. Right, and, and, and every single one of God's commandments that we have studied through, all 10 of them are about protecting you from doing that, right? Last week, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not settle for some passing, meaningless thrill that is outside of God's plan and purpose for your life, for your fulfillment and for your satisfaction. You shall not covet. You shall not chase after thinking that what you really need is more stuff. What you really need is that life that you've always wanted. What you really need is your planet lifestyle and all the stuff that you've accumulated and the time that you spend running after those things, thinking that will fulfill you, thinking you're getting some sort of happiness out of the exhaustion of maintaining a life that is always after more that is passing away. Live in this world and receive all of its blessings knowing you were made not for these things that come up empty, but for your eternal joy in God, right? Every, every single one of the commandments, they're there to protect us. And so there is, in the heart of the believer, there ought to be, and, and this is in no way saying this is always the case, but to have met this God, to know this truth, there is a trembling, there's a carefulness, there's a desire of God. I do not want anything less than who you are. So keep me near you. Growl at me if you need to. Discipline me. Preserve me. 
in the fear of you for my joy and for your glory. Let's stand together. In these moments, and this is what God intends to do in this passage, puts us in the crosshairs of, of discovering it. Is that what I've encountered? Is this the one that I know as God? Or is he small and easy? And, and, and am I thinking that I can come to him on my terms? Maybe some sort of hope in your goodness and if somebody were to ask you, and why should God accept you? Why should the God of Exodus 20 allow you into his presence for all eternity? The answer you've always given is, well, I think I've been pretty good and tried to do what's best and tried to be kind to people. You know, I'm not perfect, but not like some other people in this world. Please allow this passage to knock you in the head and strangle out of you any hope in you. Because when you are before God on that day, that will seem so thin. If you've been coming to God on your own terms in a way that doesn't involve repentance, that doesn't acknowledge his lordship and give him authority over your life and so you, you've been okay with having some association with God as like your life coach as there to give good tips and inspiring thoughts but not to own you not to claim you to say I've, I've purchased you your heart's mine, your affection is mine, your money's mine, your time is mine if you can't think of how you have ever or now in some way acknowledged him as Lord, you are, you are taking this God who cannot be contained in creation and you are minimizing him into something that you can manage. And listen, that is dangerous. For some of us, we, we know God, we know the gospel but he's a whisper in the noise of our life. The mercy of God, the forgiveness that we've received, we, we continue to be essentially unaffected. Sure, we once knew what it was like to be amazed. God would know me, that he would want me, that he would include me as an object of his affection. Right now, it's relatively easy for you to settle for things like bitterness, discontent, unforgiveness toward the people around you because you are out of touch with what you faced before this holy God. God wants us to encounter Him. 
And listen, this is a unique moment. I'm not here saying that every week for us is in Exodus 20, right? That this plays a role in this storyline of Scripture. God is installing something about himself. But, 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 but there's something here that God wants inside of you. There's a laying hold of God that, that he wants you to meet and you to know. And that that wouldn't be distant from you. That he would not be small on the horizon of your life, but that his incredible size would cast a shadow over all of your concerns and all of your anxieties and all of your worries. And everything else would be placed in perspective as you stand in awe of the untamable God. I believe the Lord wants to meet with us. And perhaps you're in one of those two categories. Maybe you would acknowledge, I don't think I've ever become right with this God in a way that really required the death of his son for the forgiveness of my sin. I don't, I don't think I've I don't think I have received, I don't think I've turned toward him as the Lord of my life. And perhaps the Lord is leading you to, to do that for the first time today. I invite you to respond in one category, and there's another category that I'd also like to respond, which is if, if you would acknowledge that the fear of the Lord you wouldn't even begin to be able to point to, where, where's that happening in my life right now? Where's the awe? Where's the trembling? Where is the fight against lukewarmness? I don't want to settle for anything less than who he is. If that's just not been inside of your heart lately, I, I believe the Lord wants you to repent and take some time to stare at him as well. So as we sing, if you describe yourself in that, that first category of coming to Christ to receive his forgiveness, if you, if you come forward and stand at this part of the stage over here up front, if you're in that second category of just needing to walk in the fear of the Lord and needing a, a new glimpse of who he is that overwhelms your life, if you come forward and stand here as we sing and you interact with God and you allow him to meet with you.
know some of you guys need to go, but we're, we're gonna we're just gonna play along some more music. If you want to spend more time up here praying, this is this is a good word that we heard this morning. It's a word that needs a response to it. So if you need to spend some time responding to the Lord in this word, feel free to do that now. Service is over. Thank you guys for being with us, but we're just gonna let the Lord continue to minister to some folks here. So if you need to leave, leave please exit quietly.